Welcome to Malpractice Podcast. Hey, are you ready to get started? I'm ready to get started. Same here. I'm Jess. Oh, I'm Sydney. And this is Malpractice Podcast. And and we're here, yeah. We're barely here. <laughs> Sydney doesn't feel great. Yeah, my uh, family celebrated this weekend my grandma's 95th birthday party. Shout out to her. Shout out to the grandmas. Which is a really big deal. Yeah, 95 is crazy. Um, and I think I came back from it sick. Yeah, well you did, because I spoke to you when you were in the car. On the way there, and you didn't sound sick. Yeah, so that's why my voice sounds, you know, scratchy and ill. Yeah. Well, we all want you to feel better. I'm speaking on behalf of everyone here. I think there might be something wrong with my immune system. I'm probably going to cut this part out because it sounds weird to talk about my health issues, but I am sick like all the time now, and I never used to get sick. Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID quarantine, I never got sick. And now? Never not sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else was I going to say? The birthday was a success. There was a sheet cake the size of like a suitcase. As there should be if you're 95. <laughs> she blew her candles out. It was great. Aww. And she's so cute. Oh, yeah. My grandma's precious. Um, Everybody calls her Saint Lydia because mm-hmm. she's, A of all, super Catholic, and B of all, she would take in, despite having nine children, she would take in children whose parents were, like, not taking care of them. Oh, of course she would. Yeah. She's uh, she's just a sweet little lady. How are you? I'm good. What's, what's the baby update? Just growing and thriving. You got a 3D facial scan yesterday. That was cool. Oh, yeah. That was, that was cool. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah. You're like, oh. You know what your baby's... 3D face looks like. like that's inside me. That's weird. Yeah, it is weird. <laughs> Sydney's weirded out. She got really weirded out right now. <laughs> I'm a little weirded out, mostly because I feel like I have several friends who are in various stages of pregnancy or postpartum. And I feel like I've heard a lot more horror stories recently. Oh, yeah. It's terrifying. Uh-huh. It's all terrifying. Yeah, we should do an episode on pregnancy stuff. To scare everyone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't my intention, but yeah, probably it would. Okay, so I think you guys are really going to enjoy this interview today. We're going to be talking today to Benjamin Lightburn, who is the CEO and co-founder of Filament Health, a company based out of Canada. Benjamin is a proven entrepreneur and leader specializing in research, development, and commercialization of novel extraction techniques. And if that sounds complicated, he's going to tell you all about what that means. Filament Health is centered around naturally deriving psychedelic medicines. So I think we have a really great interview for you guys today. We hope you really like it. My name is Ben Lightburn. I go by he, him pronouns. I am CEO and co-founder of a company called Filament Health. 
Filament Health is specialized in developing all kinds of different uh, psychedelic drugs. So compounds that you may have heard of like psilocybin, DMT, but the difference with filament is that we do everything naturally. So what that means is we actually derive these drugs from natural sources, uh, magic mushrooms in, in the case of psilocybin. As it turns out, all research uh, up till now on psychedelics has actually been done on uh, synthetic substances. So this means that mm. it's compounds that are kind of made in the traditional way in an artificial uh, synthetic manufacturing process. A couple of things about, about naturals. Number one is that when you extract something from a natural source, you're actually um, taking out much more than just the one single compound that you would get if you were making a synthetic substance. Mm -hmm. There's a dozen or more other active compounds in magic mushrooms, for instance, that you do extract when you do things naturally. Also, we know that people just prefer natural products, right? Um, yeah. In the future, if we can imagine a future psychedelics market, we think it's important for eventual consumers to have a choice between a synthetic product and a natural product. We know that consumers in all other industries, you know, vastly prefer natural products. You know, they don't want any more artificial food coloring or artificial flavoring or artificial caffeine or artificial anything. So why should uh, psychedelics be any different? So that, that's a little bit about the, the company and what we do. Yeah, that's awesome. And what about what about you for a second? Um, can you tell us just a couple fun facts about you, maybe where you live, what you like to do for fun? Sure. So um, I'm six foot six. Oh, that's wow. Something that, <laughs> that you probably can't tell without seeing me in person. Mm -hmm. uh, I love to ski. I live in West Vancouver, which is a suburb of Vancouver, which is right on the foot of a ski mountain. So in 20 minutes, I can be uh, at a ski resort uh, locally, or in an hour and a half, I can be at a, like a, a really big resort um, called Whistler. On Tuesday nights, I go up and I volunteer to teach kids with disabilities how, how to ski kind of as my weekly volunteer thing. So that's one thing I'm quite passionate about. Wow, wow that's amazing. That's awesome. I'm a skier myself, and I've always heard great things about Whistler. I've never been never been there, but I've heard fantastic things from people who ski. You know, it's it can be very busy, um, but it's got something for everything, right? You have nightlife in the valley, you have skiing, you know, if it's snowing and you're up in the peak chair, people are jumping off cliffs and you'll see pro skiers there. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great place. I've spent pretty much my whole life skiing there. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a little bit jealous. We're in Texas and we're having our second winter, but it's, <laughs> it's nothing like what you guys get. Yeah, it's no. No. Well, and that's also the beautiful thing about Vancouver is that it it rarely goes below freezing here in the city. Um, but you have all this phenomenal skiing just within an hour. So you sort of have the, the best of both worlds. That's amazing. Sounds great. Yeah. Maybe we'll vacation there one day, Sid. Honestly. For sure. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much for sharing a bit about yourself. We would love to hear more about your company um, and kind of like what your team does. So full transparency, we creeped on your website. We <laughs> took a look at your team. They're all super impressive. We just want to know maybe even the backstory. How did how did this get started? Um, is this a passion project of yours and, and the other co-founder? Or how did you fall into this? Because it's so specialized and it's so important. We just love to hear that kind of story. So the story actually starts, mm -hmm. probably starts when I was like 18 or 19 in first year of, of university, 
in my summer job, I happened to get working for a different startup that made extracts um, into uh, novel cancer drugs. Mm. Um, and that was purely just by total coincidence. The friend of a friend of a family, you know, was looking for help and in, in, in a summer job and graduated from the same university as I was going to and gave me a summer job. Um, and that's how I kind of fell by coincidence into this field of botanical extraction and manufacturing. After leaving that company, uh, several years, probably five or six years later, I joined another startup uh, that had uh-huh. developed a new kind of extraction technology that we use to make ingredients for dietary supplements, for cosmetics, for pharmaceuticals, for all different kinds of industries, from all different kinds of plants. And over the years, we built up a really incredible team at that company. The the name of the company was called Matza. And eventually, we were fortunate enough to sell that company in 2018 to a large American acquirer. After that acquisition, unfortunately, many of the people kind of left the company or were let go by the acquirer. I lasted about a year. This is a pretty common story after a company gets acquired. Mm -hmm. But so there we are kind of, you know, looking for the next project and the next thing to do. And, you know, we started looking into psychedelics and a couple of things really struck us about this, you know, nascent psychedelics industry. This going back to 2018, 2019. Number one is that there didn't really seem to be anybody focused on making natural psychedelics, right? And uh-huh. you know, just look at the cannabis market and see what the preference is for natural. It's almost 100% natural, right? So, so that was one thing that that really caught our attention, especially given our experience making uh, similar substances. Um, number two, and probably the more important, was the amount of amazing clinical research that was getting published about the efficacy of these different substances. And so we knew that we, we had a, an opportunity to really combine our skills and experience working, you know, working with regulators, working with manufacturing, getting a GMP facility up and running. You know, we'd done all of that stuff before and a lot of people jumping into the psychedelics industry really didn't have any experience doing anything at all besides, you know, public markets, mining companies or something like that. Right. But even more importantly, it was a chance to apply our skills and experience that we built up over many years to an industry that had the opportunity to do a lot of good to a lot of people. I mean, the, the mental health crisis is probably the most pressing crisis, um, if you consider the number of suicides and overdose deaths and all these societal problems that that come, I mean, 50% of North Americans will experience a serious mental health crisis by the time that they're age 40, right? Yeah. You don't have to look very far amongst your family and friends to uh, find someone that um, is unfortunately suffering from depression or PTSD and has tried multiple courses of different medications if they exist um, and ha- not had very much luck. So, you know, we need new options in that industry. Psychedelics are looking like they are very promising to provide those new options. And we had, you know, unique skills and experience to provide those substances in a natural way that we think would be the way that consumers prefer in the long run. So those, those are all the reasons why we decided to, to jump in to the, uh, to, to the industry. That's a great point. And it actually transitions really nicely into my next question, which is for our listeners, can you explain some of the medical uses or medicinal uses for psilocybin 
and other psychedelics that are currently being explored? What are researchers looking into? What kind of clinical trials are being done right now? So psilocybin and, and other, psilocybin is um, the most advanced psychedelic. Um, your listeners may have also heard about clinical trials involving MDMA. Um, that's not typically considered to be a psychedelic, although it's a somewhat related compound, especially in terms of its uh, regulatory status and, and history of prohibition. MDMA is being studied in the most advanced state for PTSD. Psilocybin so far, the, the, the majority of the research has been focused on depression, uh, treatment-resistant depression, uh -huh. but also for uh, what we call uh, end-of-life distress or um, adjustment disorder uh, stemming from a terminal diagnosis. But there's other many other um, uh, indications as well. You have alcohol use disorder, other substance use disorders, uh, you have anxiety, you have eating disorders, you know, the, the list really goes on and on and on. Um, and um, it's growing, in fact, all the time. So that's what makes working in uh, psychedelics so exciting is that we might not even know, like the, the, the thing that it works the best for might not even yet be known, right? Um, you know, uh, bipolar disorder, OCD, like there's just all these things, many, many of which are very, very tough to study clinically. Yeah. Uh, there's just all these ideas circulating and there's a lot of in enthusiasm, which of course, sometimes you have to temper expectations. It's not, you know, much research is needed. This is not a, you know, a panacea for everything. Um, but there definitely is very, very good preliminary research that's been published in very high quality journals by extremely competent groups. Yeah, we actually have a, a few groups in Houston. We have a giant medical center here in Houston, I'm sure you know, but um, there are a few groups doing some clinical trials for treatment resistant depression using psilocybin. So, um, on the filament website, you have a really interesting paragraph and I, I didn't know this, so I'm guessing our listeners don't. Can you explain the difference between, um, psilocybin and psilocin? I, I definitely can. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's basically 50% of my job is explaining the difference. Yeah. That's one of the most fascinating things that we discovered as we got into this. So contrary to popular belief, psilocybin is not actually bioactive. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It doesn't, it's not a serotonin analog. It does not cause the effects, the hallucinogenic effects that we all know and love, or some of us love. <laughs> psilocybin actually needs to convert into a uh, closely related compound called psilocin or psilocin or psilocin. There's actually, doesn't seem to be any standardized pronunciation. Okay. Um, and it's actually psilocin, which is the serotonin analog and the 5-HT2A receptor agonist, okay? Mm -hmm. That process to convert the psilocybin into the psilocin happens uh, uh, via a process called uh, dephosphorylation via uh, phosphatase enzymes that are present in the body. However, we also know that fixed oral doses of psilocybin can produce highly variable results. And our theory is that this variability could be caused in part by different amounts of enzymes present in different people, um, which we know can cause a variable conversion of other pro-drugs into drugs. The, the name of this phenomenon is pro-drug and drug relationship. Uh -huh. Something like 10% of people lack the enzyme, which converts codeine into morphine. As, as an example, it's not the same enzymes as with psilocybin and psilocin, 
but that's just an example of how you know the, this uh, sort of enzymatic conversion process in the body can lead to uh, vastly differing effects. The other thing that surprised us is that nobody had actually directly administered psilocin before. Right. Um, and to the best of our knowledge, the reason that this is is because psilocin is highly unstable, especially in the conditions necessary for synthetic manufacturing. And since all psychedelic drugs so far that have been studied have been manufactured synthetically, you know, there really has been a way to manufacture in a kind of a feasible scale, stable, standardized, um, uh, sort of human deliverable psilocin. But because we manufacture things naturally, we do things, you know, completely differently, starting from mushrooms, right? Um, uh, we were actually able to find a way to extract, stabilize, standardize an oral dosage of psilocin, and not only that, um, get the FDA's uh, approval to actually administer it into a clinical trial. So our wow. first clinical trial um, was looking at the effects of psilocybin versus psilocin, uh, administered both orally and um, sublingually. Because the, the substance has already been dephosphorylated, we think that it's a, a good candidate for sublingual administration because it can cross right into the through the um, oral mucosa uh, right into the right. right into the bloodstream. That's a really great way of summarizing the difference between natural and synthetic. Next question I had is specifically about standardizing dosing and onset time, which I think is one of the big advantages. My understanding is one of the big advantages of what you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. And if anybody's taken an edible of basically any kind, you can probably understand how important that is in a clinical setting to to standardize those two things. Can you talk a little bit more about your how your approach does that? Definitely. So the the biggest question we always get is, well, natural that that's unstandardized and it's you you get a, a different amount every time and and in fact that's true when you're talking about mushrooms, right? Mushrooms themselves can have an extremely variable amount of psilocybin in them. One mushroom to the next, even within the same mushroom, you can have a much higher content in the cap rather than the stem. Yeah. And some mushrooms are very powerful, right? So like in some mushrooms, only one gram will give you a full therapeutic dose. In other mushrooms, that will, one gram will only give you like just above a microdose. So we, can, we see up to five times variability in mushrooms, even from the same flush. So when people say natural is highly variable, you know, they're right, as opposed to with a synthetic, where you essentially get the exact same thing every single time. Uh -huh. What we've been able to do is create technology which extracts the target compounds from the biomass, the psilocybin from the biomass. We extract it, and then we purify it. And then we add pharmaceutical excipients and other things to actually bring the level way back down but to a pre precisely known quantity. That's what we call standardization. That way you get sort of all the benefits of the natural product, right? You get all the secondary metabolites and you get something that came from nature, but you don't have the downsides of the extreme variability. Right. So that's how we get the consistent dose. Onset time is related to, you know, how your body metabolizes this and gets the drug that converts the psilocybin into psilocin and then gets the psilocin into the bloodstream. And that can still be variable for different people, but that's one of the things that we're hoping to minimize that variability by directly administering the psilocin rather than the psilocybin. Yeah. 
that that's really really cool and i saw we'll share the the paper that you guys shared on your website but i saw someone had done a study where they looked at different plasma psilocin levels over time and it was really variable from person to person so i think just seeing that that figure was astounding to me in terms of how important it is to to start thinking about dosing and onset time and things like that which i think probably gets overlooked a lot Agreed. And, and it's just by coincidence that, you know, psilocin is unstable and psilocybin is much more stable. And therefore, all the research has been done with psilocybin. It, it's not for through any like, mm, yeah, good reason, right? It's just through like a kind of practical manufacturing reason. So you already touched on mental health a little bit, but has this I guess, increased focus on mental health, specifically, I guess, that really kind of spiked during COVID. There was just more conversation around what are we doing really for mental health and, and how are we seeking like care for our mental health? Mm-hmm. Has that changed the way people view psychedelic research, in your opinion? Uh, definitely it has. Um, um, you know, we're not viewed as much as crazy hippies like running around doing nonsense you know (laughs) although those still do exist right Um, (laughs) but I think by now you know enough research has come out from enough from you know Johns Hopkins and UCSF and you know Mm -hmm. leading research institutions all around the world you know it's showing that this is a legitimate field of, of of research and I think most psychedelics companies try to go to great lengths to, you know, present themselves as traditional drug developers in order to, you know, not scare away investors and, and things like that. The other thing is that, yeah, unfortunately, the, the mental health crisis is, you know, simmering and boiling even more up to the forefront every day, right? Especially, especially during COVID, right? right. Um, and so it's, it's now like a five alarm fire and we need any and all tools at our disposal in order to help fight this emergency, especially when it comes to psychedelics, which frankly, you know, have a very long demonstrated history of safe use and consumption. You know, there's some of the least toxic substances that are out there. They're less toxic than nicotine, less toxic than cannabinoids, less toxic than pretty, probably less toxic even than caffeine, just because social stigma and, you know, Ronald Reagan's war on the counterculture and minorities is again, not a really valid reason why we shouldn't have these things available. And of course there's risks. And, you know, we're talking about vulnerable populations. We need to exercise great care when we, you know, give new medicines, but, you know, we always like to say like doing nothing is also not an option because in the status quo, people are literally dying in the street, be it from suicide or overdose or any number of effects. Yeah. I appreciate you mentioning that. I love to take a historical look back and maybe the yeah metaphorical finger to some <laughs> some people for for the effects that they they're still having on on populations and kind of like the institutional way that that's carried forward um you touched on some misconceptions already that are in this space of natural or non-natural right psychedelics is there anything else that you're like this is my calling card like this is not true that you want us to just make sure our listeners know I, I, a lot of it would definitely stem around variability. So, you know, 
when you read about people doing like psychedelics use, they're always talking about, you know, I did this many grams of mushrooms. And unfortunately, that is a completely meaningless number because of the variability of the psilocybin in those mushrooms. Oh, wow. Not even taking into consideration how those mushrooms are dried, stored, you know, are they stored in minus 40 or plus 40 or are they fully dried or not fully dried? Any, any, any of these things. So people need to be very aware that different mushrooms can contain vastly different amounts of psilocybin. The other thing that, that kind of bugs me is that people refer to magic mushrooms as psilocybin. And that's not true at all. That's like referring to the coffee bean as caffeine, mm. right? Or to the cannabis plant as THC. Like it sounds silly when you think about these other examples. It doesn't make any sense. Like um, the coffee bean contains caffeine, right? That's, a, that's an example that we know and are comfortable with. But people and even governments and regulators use the word psilocybin and magic mushrooms interchangeably and it really grinds really grinds my gears <laughs> and i wish they would stop okay we'll we'll let everybody know <laughs> or, or like gray market products great gray market is the kind of um the kind of favorable the euphemistic way of saying illegal black market um like you've seen chocolates and things made with magic mushrooms they'll say you know this chocolate contains you know, 400 milligrams of psilocybin. That is in, in 16 times like a high dose, right? It doesn't contain 400 milligrams of psilocybin. It contains 400 milligrams of, right. of ground up magic mushroom powder. Mm. How much psilocybin is in there that people don't know? And that's probably why they're not saying because they don't have an analytical tool to, to measure it. <laughs> Again, not to say that that product is dangerous or unsafe, although yeah. it's, it hasn't been produced in a quality controlled environment. Anyways, that that's one of the things that um yeah. that kind of that kind of bugs me. Bugs me too now. <laughs> that would that would make me mad too. <laughs> um has your company faced any legal hurdles in researching or working with psychedelics? Honestly, other than a mountain of red tape getting our various licenses to do this legally, mm -hmm. um I would say no. I would say the governments of that's awesome. uh Canada and uh, the United States where most of our activities are taking place seem in general to be um, relatively favorable to this kind of research. Um, you know, we have a very active and fruitful relationship with Health Canada on a, on a number of different uh, uh, fronts, you know, on the security for our controlled substances, on, you know, running actual clinical trials and all things of that nature. Similarly, in the United States, as, as long as you're doing things within the framework and the framework that exists does provide for pharmaceutical research. And in fact, it's sort of the only legal thing that, that you can do. Um, it's annoying and there's a lot of red tape and it's kind of annoying when this like yeah. thriving gray market is allowed to exist. Um, not because I disagree with it, but because here we are to do things the right way. You have to, <laughs> yeah. like I said, do a mountain of red tape and, yeah. you know, it could be revoked at any time if you break a rule and all that kind of thing. It's a lot, very risky. Um, in the meantime, like I can go down to any number of stores in Vancouver, just buy mushrooms from a store mm -hmm. in general. Like I said, the, most governments, they, they want to have good mental health options for their, for their patients, for their people. And, you know, there's growing acceptance that the war on drugs is hopefully finished. Um, and it's counterproductive. It doesn't work, especially when it comes to magic mushrooms and psychedelics. There's not really any 
Mm-hmm. large criminal enterprise, you know, growing huge mushrooms, That's you know, great. I think it mostly is just people in their basements, mm-hmm. you know, with <laughs> yeah. growing kits and things like that. So no, I mean, the, 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 the short answer is, is no. That's great. And actually surprising to me. We've covered uh, in our show before we've covered medicinal marijuana. And so we've covered sort of the drug scheduling mm-hmm debacle that happened with marijuana. And I think we touched on uh, psychedelics a little bit in that. So it's surprising to me that I I feel like that the government is being so cooperative and in a positive way. At least our government. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. That's surprising. (laughs) You know, they'll say, just so you know, psilocybin is a schedule one controlled substance with a high possible for abuse and, you know, no recognized medical benefits and yada, 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 yada. Right. Well, they're confused. They need you to explain it to them. (laughs) And so you need to submit a plan that shows how you're going to make sure that people won't become addicted and blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, FDA has given psilocybin breakthrough therapy designation, right? So they're saying it has an outstanding chance to help millions of people. Yeah, You know, those two things can't actually be true at the same time. For sure. In that same vein, your website mentions the fact that there are hundreds of clinically unexplored psychedelic species each of those containing multiple active compounds besides DMT, psilocybin. What are some of the other areas that you are most excited about? Um, Well, there's mescaline for one. Um, We have, we're working on a product, a mescaline product that's extracted from the San Pedro cactus. A lot less is known about mescaline, you know, scientifically, clinically than, um, uh, than some of these other other substances. There's, you know, there's other ones like 5-MeO-DMT. There's uh, 5-HO-DMT, known as bufotenin, a tradition, traditional entheogen from the Amazon region. What's important to remember is that each of these species, just going back to magic mushroom, there, there's, there's something like 100 different psilocybin-containing species of mushrooms, right? Um, and of those, there's any number of varieties, right? Um, all of these could potentially contain a different amount of all the different metabolites, right? So again, going back to coffee and, and cannabis, right? Like different coffee beans have different flavors, different uh, cannabis plants produce different effects. We think the same thing could be true for different species and strains of, of magic mushrooms. Um, the only way to find that out is to actually make standardized preparations and test it in clinical trials. This is why we're so excited about being focused on natural is that this is, you know, just opens up this huge door to a big library of all these potential candidates, you know, just waiting to get um, studied and and explored from many different species and many different varieties within those species. Yeah, sounds like a super exciting time to be in the field. Definitely, definitely it is. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's just so many things going on and, and so many new products and so many new studies. And we have people reaching out to us from all over the world for access to our drugs. It is, it's a very exciting time. Yeah, that's great. So when you think about the next 5, 10, 15 years, I don't know if you, if you think like that, like that, if you're thinking that far away, um, but what are your dreams for your company and, and for really the work in like psychedelics in general? I would hope that within that time frame, we have some kind of legal access to psychedelics and not just through the uh, pharmaceutical approval pathway. You know, it's pretty likely that, you know, psilocybin will get approved as a drug in the United States. 
But I think that because of the uniqueness of psilocybin as a compound, on account of the fact that it's been known by humans for millennia and safely consumed, you know, for, for that long as well, you know, we, it doesn't really fit the traditional pharmaceutical drug development pathway, which is focused on new compounds with no history of safety and efficacy. We actually saw the Australian government last week, they actually rescheduled psilocybin from, in their case, schedule nine to schedule eight. And this will actually allow prescribers on a limited basis to actually start prescribing psilocybin, even though there are no approved drugs in Australia with psilocybin in them. Mm. I suspect we'll see more shifts like this. We had a similar one in Canada at the beginning of last year. Canada has allowed access to psilocybin and MDMA through something called the Special Access Program, which is a program uh, that allows physicians to request access to unapproved medication on an emergency basis if their patients are really suffering. And we've been actively supplying that program. Again, our drugs are not approved uh, medicines, not yet, but there are ways that we are able to get the drugs out into the hands of the patients who need them. We're also seeing state level uh, schemes like in Oregon State and soon in Colorado, where the state governments or the, the citizens through via ballot measures are saying, look, like the federal government's moving too slow. We can't wait for them. We need to have some kind of state regulated market as similarly to what happened in cannabis. And those are also coming. And hopefully that ends up providing um, more access to people um, rather than through the kind of traditional um, pharmaceutical medical medical model. So I think those are the things, just more access. Those are what I hope to see in the next uh, 5, 10, 15 years. And one day I hope that we have um, completely legal recreational psychedelics at, at a dispensary. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we should be ashamed of, um, of shooting for that goal. I mean, frankly, you know, lots of people are already consuming magic mushrooms because it's fun and they like it. Yeah. Why not? It's better for you than better for you than drinking. I would argue it's probably better for you than than consuming cannabis. And when you think back from the beginning, what has been the most exciting advancement so far? Um, it, it doesn't have to be like specific extraction. It just like what was the one thing you're like, that was awesome. I think getting the the FDA's authorization to study the first naturally extracted psychedelics. I think that was the, that, that's been the high point of ours for sure. You know, starting the company and, you know, saying we're going to do things naturally. It was, it was a little bit nebulous, a little bit hard for people to understand. And, you know, people said it's not GMP, it's not standardized, it's not stable, blah, blah, blah. They said all these things. And, and by getting the FDA to authorize our drugs to go into human clinical trial, you know, that went a kind of a long way towards uh, proving those, those naysayers wrong. Now, a year later after that, it seems like, you know, we have more requests for our psilocybin via the special access program and into other clinical trials. You know, we have more requests than we can almost handle. Uh, so, you know, we've, I think we're, we're, we're quite proud that we've been able to kind of first prove the feasibility and now, um, you know, demonstrate the, the, the viability of, of natural psychedelic substances. Yeah. That feels like a huge deal. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, has there been anyone that you've met on your journey to where you are now, or you've worked with that, that really inspires you? Good question. Well, um, 
one of the one of the fellows I really enjoy interacting with and discussing with is is Dennis McKenna. Um, he is in the pantheon of important people in in psychedelics, particularly in natural psychedelics. Uh, has done a lot of work uh, with a lot of people all around the world, and so he's someone, like I said, that is that I really enjoy interacting with, and we're very grateful for his contributions to science, which we're you know actively using to build on in 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 some of the things that we do. Yeah, awesome. I've heard that name before. <laughs> um, before we. And is there anything that we're leaving out or that you want to just put a final stamp on from our conversation? You know, there's a lot of excitement and a lot of it's warranted. Um, But, you know, similarly to when cannabis was getting up and off the ground, you know, it it, it was the cure for everything. I think you saw even cannabis companies coming out with cancer claims, right? And just, Mm -hmm. and they got warning letters from the FDA, rightfully so. The, the hype can actually kind of be damaging to patients that are hoping uh, to be helped, right? And so it's important to temper these expectations yeah. and, and create a balance, right? And, you know, further study is needed. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. It's not a cure for everything or at least hasn't been proven to be yet. It's interesting to hear you pre- preaching patience because I feel like if it were me, I'd be so excited that you got <laughs> FDA approval. I'd be like, yeah, it probably does cure everything. How do you temper that excitement, though? Do you, do you find yourself? I, I find yeah. I think I would be the same as Sydney, like sprinting forward, like catch up if you can. I'm so excited about this. How do you temper that? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's tough also because you have a company and you need to raise money and like you also want to create some hype and all that kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's 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 difficult, right? We get people reaching out to us um, via email all the time saying, hey, like, can I have some of your psilocybin or like my brother or, or me or myself or there's so many people that could potentially be helped by it. Um, and it's a little bit heart wrenching to say like, no, it's illegal. You, you can't have it. And also like, we're not your doctor, so we're not going right. to like prescribe you or even really make any kind of recommendations. So, you know, you wish people well, and, and, um, you, you just have to have a, you have to have a realistic conversation with people that are coming into clinical trials saying this is a, an unproven method, you know, it's relatively safe. So we should, it's worthwhile trying, but we don't really have any idea whether, whether it's, it's going to work. It's a, it's an unfortunate fact of mental health clinical research that people, you know, they may be at their wits end and they may have tried any number of different um, medications and nothing's worked. And so they may be holding out a lot of hope for this, um, for this treatment and they might get the placebo or they might, be a non-responder, and then they can become even more despondent. Yeah. It's just an unfortunate fact of drug developing in this therapeutic area. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. But I do feel like despite the fact that it's early days and everyone should be careful about, you know, how hyped they get, it does seem like people are reporting pretty positive outcomes, especially for things like treatment-resistant depression where... So I read this book. I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this author. Her name is Islet Waldman, and the book is called A Really Good Day. And she talks about microdosing with psilocybin for the first time. And she's like, I've struggled with depression for so long mm-hmm. that all I wanted was one really good day. Mm-hmm. Personal anecdotes are one thing. And then obviously there's clinical data, which is what you need to drive your point. But I think it's so exciting for people when they hear, you know, a breakthrough in a space that has been either largely ignored 
or impossible to treat for so long. It's it's a super exciting thing to be a part of. Well, and if it's working for people, who are we to say no? Um, and you hear those stories all the time, especially when it comes to microdosing, the naysayers would say, anecdotal, it's expectation bias, you know, can't be, can't be counted on, blah, blah, blah. So again, the answer is more research is needed, right? Placebo controlled and people kind of scoff at the uh, microdosing crowd, but also there hasn't really been much research into any kind of disease populations, right? right. Um, you know, people say, oh, my focus and my mental clarity and the, you know, the drug developer goes pshaw. those aren't FDA approved indications, but right. same time, it's what people, you know, it matters to them. And they, and they, and they report, like you said, they self-report overwhelmingly positive, good outcomes. And if the substance is relatively safe and we, we aren't seeing much signs of toxicity, then again, like, why not? Yeah, I completely agree. We ask everybody at the end of our conversations, um, the same question. And if you're not a caffeine drinker, um, totally fine. We accept that we are concerned for you, but we accept it. Um, but we ask oh, everybody. <laughs> okay, good. We ask everybody how you take your coffee, and we'll just use the caveat of how how do you take your caffeine if you don't drink coffee? No, definitely a coffee drinker. Um, you know, I'm a professional botanical extraction person, so you know we don't we make. You know, it's one of the things we say. It's like people are like, well, what's an extract? Okay, well, what about coffee and tea? That those are both botanical extracts, and they're the most widely consumed beverages on the on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. every morning I make uh, I grind beans and I make um, a stovetop uh, mocha pot, like an Italian thing. Oh, wow! Um, and then I uh, kind of froth some milk to make a bit of a cappuccino latte, similar beverage for for my wife and I. So that's how I that's how I drink it. Sounds great. That sounds lovely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like halfway between espresso and coffee. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the one thing I like a, a lot about it is that, uh, you don't have to have like any kind of like filters and stuff like that. It, it, it's really easy to, to clean the pot out and make another pot. That's awesome. yeah. <laughs> that might be the best, most, uh, coffee snobbish answer we've gotten so yeah. far. <laughs> most of the t- we've gotten a lot of people actually who are like, I don't drink coffee. We're and then we're like, well, bye <laughs> i don't know how you do things we have nothing in common <laughs> yeah. well i'm i'm glad i'm not disappointing you then you definitely are not you're not yeah you're in good company we love we love our coffee and we love a froth for sure coffee yeah. as and well this, this was such an interesting interview i'm so excited that we got to talk to you thank you so much for yes. for sitting down with us today you're very welcome it was a pleasure to be on thank you yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, follow the trajectory of what Filament Health yeah. keeps doing. Great. Well, we're uh, always interested in more followers and um, more attention and, and uh, more people interested in what we're doing. Thanks so much, Ben. Well, thank you again. This is absolutely fabulous. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, I'm super excited about this. All right. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Filament Health is on social media in several different forms, and we will link those in our show notes so that you guys can also follow along with what they're doing. Hey, Malpals. Thanks for listening. The sources and links for this episode can be found in our show notes. If you haven't already, go follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Malpractice Podcast. You can also send topic suggestions, questions, or concerns to our email, malpracticepodcast at gmail.com. And just as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing, you should definitely subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And don't forget, malpractice, malpractice makes, makes perfect. perfect. Bye-bye. Bye.